This is The Shift Podcast. Welcome to The Shift Weekend Podcast with John Jang. On this episode, journalist Ari Shapiro returns with our Ontario Connection, discussing how Ontario schools are being closed until the fall and how the news of the Kamloops Residential School is being received in that province. It's Weird Science with Andrew Ferreira, and this time Andrew really puts the weird in science by talking about Athenian binding curses using dismembered chicken heads. Apparently that's a thing. And let's talk love as Nicole Haley is back, our relationship and dating expert taking all your questions related to all things love. And finally, the debut of Shake It Up as Colin McDougall of Corby Spirit and Wine brings his cocktail-making expertise to the shift. It is time to bring in our guest, Ari Shapiro, our man in Ontario, who can let us know what's happening over in that region of the country with his eye and his finger on the pulse. You can find his work online at Ari Shapiro, that's S-H-A-P-I-R-O dot C-A. It's nice to have you back on the show. Not a moment too late, right? Not a moment too late and not a moment too soon. Mm. Ari, you know, it's been a few weeks since we've had you on the show uh, to give us uh, the input of what it's like there in Ontario. And in the weeks since, we have seen uh, Premier Doug Ford announce uh, more recently uh, that all of Ontario, all Ontario schools will remain closed to in-person learning until the fall. Uh, they are signaling far you know, faster uh, than other provinces have in this country that they, first of all, went to a virtual session and then have made the decision, nope, we're just going to make sure that uh, students stay at home right now. It's maybe just too dangerous. So wanted to get your reaction on that because a lot of British Columbian parents have been asking when is it our turn to see students pulled out of school? And so maybe some people on the outside are looking at what's happening in Ontario with this decision and thinking, this is actually a good move. Would you agree with that? I think a lot of people, first of all, John, are looking on the outside and scratching their heads and wondering what is the best or right policy, uh, especially if you happen to be part of this so-called glorious dominion of Canada, where we have different provinces led by different men and women who are all coming together with seemingly different solutions every day some are more consistent you have to give credit out in quebec because they've stuck to their guns from the start in emphasizing the fact that losing developmental time as a child a growing student is more than just missing out on accumulating knowledge or maturing as a human being it has far-reaching implications as we know on both the family unit um, and, and really the whole representation of how you learn and grow as a human being, because it's, it's such a difficult subject in many respects, but it's also somewhat, I think some people will agree, one where you can apply analytics. You can look at what a neighboring province is doing and say, maybe they've got the, the right decision here. I don't really know what I can tell you about the mindset or the rhyme or reason behind what Doug Ford does when it comes to education in this province, mm. because th there, there really isn't much to write home about here. And what I mean by that is I wish I could tell you that at some point during this 15, 16 month ordeal in this province with the pandemic, that he's been on top of it. Like, honestly, I wish there was a segment in time where I could tell you, John, I can confidently say that in the month of July or for three and a half weeks in August, Doug Ford was on the top of his game with his people, his his right-hand man and, and left-hand woman. He's got Christine Elliott and, and Stephen Lecce on the on the job, on the task, on the on the focus of, of how to make life better for Ontarians. But that hasn't been happening here. His most recent press conference, I think, is once again a reminder that whenever Doug Ford disappears for a couple of weeks, he usually comes back with a a greater confident sounding sermon to offer Ontarians. And this time he came back and it seemed like he was well coached because man, oh man, his last press conference earlier this week sounded like something straight out of a typical CNN American broadcast, mm. watching a Democrat or Republican deliver their sound bites and then immediately pivot and deflect when asked by our journalists here in Ontario, why are you not reopening schools why are you encouraging graduation celebrations against medical advice what was the reason you made this decision when all along it's clear you really didn't have a clue what you were doing i think that's the consensus now i say that because you know we have four dailies in this city which is a rarity in north america mm -hmm. you'll be hard-pressed to find 
a city in North America that has four. And, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm willing to go out on a limb and say that I don't think there is another city that has four dailies that cover the covers the ideological spectrum of what you read from from all the way to the bleeding heart left to across straight down to the the traditionalist right mentality. Right. I only said bleeding heart because I don't mean to demonize the left and in, in all of their great intentions. But the fact is, if you read the Toronto Star long enough, you think you'd live you'd be living in a utopia because it's all about good. If you read our Toronto Sun or the National Post, you get a lot of this criticism from editorials that are born out of understanding why decisions are being made. And they've spared Doug Ford a lot of that criticism. One newspaper that I enjoy here is the Globe and Mail, and they don't. There was a recent article, I think it was, by one of their top writers who criticized the fact that when you really look back from an educational perspective uh, of how to manage the challenge of letting our, our, our boys and girls in this province grow up as normally and regularly as possible in, in the face of this pandemic, there isn't this pervasive sense of hope or confidence. It's, it's actually quite the opposite. I think the prevailing sentiment here, the prevailing sentiment is that uh, Doug Ford and, and Stephen Lecce and Christine Elliott, the, the three most prominent voices of the government, really aren't sure what they're doing. Mm. And, and John, you shouldn't be too surprised. If you look at their backgrounds, we're not talking about, you know, a group of PhDs and their requisite portfolio. I mean, there used to be a time in this country that if you were a minister of a specific aspect of government, you had extensive background in that in that field. Uh, Stephen Lecce, Christine Elliott, these are not education and health experts. These are technocrats. These are uh, University of Western educated bred and born politicians who know what to say at all the right times and have just been feeding this province a lot of gobbledygook and a lot of frustration. And that's why I think internationally we're a laughing stock. I think anyone who's on the progressive American left or is enlightened in Europe trying to make their respective countries better, they're looking at how we've handled this and they're saying, did you really make these decisions? Uh, they haven't been good ones. Hmm. We have a real problem here. We have a problem here because, first of all, our schools are very much like our long-term residential um, health care locations in the sense that they're broken down. They have poor ventilation. There's a real fear for parents about sending their children back to poor environments. When we've already established we can't take care of our elderly, we're not doing a very good job taking care of our young either. And this, I think, is going to be the absolute failure of this Ford government is that, in the end, People didn't care whether you were coming out with left or right wing policies during a pandemic. They just wanted you to make sensible decisions for their families. And when you combine the number of people who are infected in this province, the way that the vaccines were rolled out, and the fact that we don't know what's going to happen from, from a scholastic perspective, and we've, we don't know what's going to happen with the future of real long-term residential retirement health care, I'd say I would give him nothing but a passing failing grade and tell most of your Vancouver listeners, don't look to this province for help on that front. You're not going to find it. Fair. And just to offer a quick counterpunch, you know, one of the uh, criticisms levied against Dr. Bonnie Henry and her staff here in BC has been, of course, the concealment of that raw data that, um, you know, if you know that schools are safe, why don't why don't you present that information in its entirety with the public so that we are making informed decisions? Parents teachers, students. So on the counterpoint, if we look at Ontario, um, wouldn't one be able to say, it looks like Doug Ford, Lecce, you know, their staff have that data and have decided it's too risky to keep schools open? Or do you look at that and think, uh, are they trying to get easy karma points from worried parents and worried students and worried teachers right now? Is that kind of maybe what it feels more like? I like the angle you chose to go. I just don't know if I can join you on that road mm. because I think the implications go deeper in Ontario by virtue of the broken relationship that the Ford government had with educators in this province. All right. Like if it was a starting even point with most provinces that have relatively harmonious relationships between uh, the, the school's educators, the teachers who are trying to look after these children while concurrently working with the government so that they have the best possible benefits and pay imaginable. There's nothing wrong with aspirations on both sides, but here in Ontario, it's gotten pretty much rotten to the core. There isn't um, this notion of, hey, we've hit a pandemic. 
So let's go grab the teachers union and figure out how to work better with them from a government's perspective. I haven't seen anything to believe that. I'm sure that there would be some people who would come out and will listen to this segment and say, well, I can get you a quote from the government saying that the relationship with the, the, the unions is strong, but we know that no relationships with unions anywhere are strong. I mean, for crying out loud, Amazon successfully beat down unions in the States, even though you'd think that struggling during a pandemic would create a no-brainer for the outcome of being able to at least form something to stand up for the average taxpayer. And in Ontario, we have families who rely on the public school system to have people at the top who've got vision, coordination, and leadership that are working in tandem with one another. But because of our history, because of our sad, sad legacy and the way teachers were originally treated for a very long time, it clashed now with this perception that their lives are easy, right? They get a lot of vacation time. They make a lot of money as it is. Sure, I suppose you could throw that narrative around, but when I think back of my education in the late 80s and early 90s, I can distinctly remember that the teachers there, they weren't wealthy folk. They were just struggling, struggling like you and I to get by, but they, they made learning an endearing quality of nostalgia. Like I think back and I, I can remember certain teachers' names who went out of their way to make sure that I learned history and that I understood math and that I could enjoy biology in the classroom and chemistry and, and, and I absolutely hated physics. And, <laughs> and in the end, I still remember respecting it because those who taught it genuinely had a vested interest. I think people have forgotten about that in government here in this province because it all turned into a battle of numbers and economics and war. It it sullied the relationship. It really damaged what that relationship meant. And so he, here we are today with a lot of waffling and, and an inconsistency in policy. Like, look, John, there was a time where the whole world was following a model that you open the businesses, but you keep the schools closed. Mm. And then some parts of the world reversed that. And they opened the schools, but they kept the businesses closed. And then we at first initially thought that the coronavirus was all about human contact and, and social distancing. But then we really learned it's all about atmospheric elements, i.e. are you indoors and outdoors? And are you standing in line with Subway, say at a Subway with, you know, 12 people waiting and not realizing that that is what's known as a potential super spreading event? Not when you go out to the playground and play in the tennis courts, basketball courts, and if you're wealthy and privileged enough to enjoy some, some golfing on a Tuesday afternoon. <laughs> But in the final analysis here in this province, it seems like the citizenry, the population has evolved in their knowledge of this, this challenge more than government has. And now that we have this Delta variant on the move and this kind of gradual uptick in coronavirus cases, now this government is really going to be put to the test. Because so far it's been a lot of hot air and a lot of hypocrisy and a lot of, you know, hoping that you'll do what you say, but you don't end up even saying what you're going to do properly because we, we don't have a clear and understandable policy. And that's what's frustrated parents who basically now have looked at a, at a lost year for their children and, and still don't know where the end is in sight. Ari Shapiro, our man in Ontario, with a perspective on how that region of the country is doing as we're getting through, of course, another wave here in the pandemic and so many things having a trickle-down effect as a result of that. Ari, we were just talking about how the Ontario government announced quite recently that they are going to keep schools closed until the fall. We can't, however, talk about schools right now in Canada without, of course, touching on the biggest story over the past week and a little bit. The, of course, horrific discovery at the Kamloops Residential School. Here in BC, I can tell you, of course, locally, it's been a very, very important week to recognize that this pain needs to be confronted. It needs to be acknowledged. We need to learn everything we can from it so that we can better the culture that is in Canada. It's becoming a story that has caught headlines all over the world. The United States has covered it. Europe has covered it. Parts of Asia have covered the discovery. What has it been like for you and others in Ontario? There's a reckoning here, right? This is, this is an opportunity for Ontarians, Canadians as a whole to engage in some serious introspection as to what they perceived this country was all about as they were growing up and being taught its history. Because what dismays me enormously, what struck me to the core in this information being revealed, in the value of whatever journalism needed to take place for us to find out about something like this now of all time, 
struggling already with the pandemic affecting people the way it is, you can imagine for me, this was, this was not a shock or a surprise to learn that something like this exists in this country. What I think shocked me was that I knew so very little of the residential school system because if I would have taken the time myself, and I really should have, because a few years ago, we had a, a really horrible woman by the name of Lynn Biak, who was a senator in this country, who became the leading apologist for residential schools in Canada. And it got her a lot of negative attention for obvious reasons. What she said was so incredibly stupid and ignorant for a politician of any stripe who doesn't take the time to learn the history. And if you study the history of this country, when it comes to the public school system and the involvement of the Catholic Church, you should not be the least bit surprised that there would be abuse, exploitation, and murder and, and as they say here, you know, you're hearing the word genocide. And the reason you're hearing the word genocide is by virtue of what happened and is happening in our revelations of this, in our discovery of all these graves, is that there was a, a cultural extinction event going on in the way the children of indigenous Canadians were being treated. And learning about that, you know, there's a shock. You say, I've discovered something gruesome. It's a crime against humanity. But then when you start you start backtracking, you start exploring the evidence, it dawns on you that this was a, a clear case of both the ecclesiastical and the secular conspiring against Canadian, citizen, Canadian citizenry by not being transparent, open, and honest. Because you can't tell me that in the Catholic Church and in the highest levels of the Canadian government, there aren't records of the extent of what was transpiring. And if they were, quote, records that were erased or, or had suddenly mysteriously vanished or never were even made in the first place. There obviously was no accountability set into place in the way that these young children who were either orphaned or ripped away from their families found themselves in a place that ultimately cared so little of the value of their lives that we have to discover so many generations later and in some cases, as recently as, I mean, the last school was run in 1996, John. We're not talking about something like the Armenian, you know, the Armenian Holocaust, where we didn't have uh, enough multimedia available, right? Because that wasn't the age of photography. That was still the written word. That's why so few people fail to understand the atrocities that took place um, that were perpetrated by one force against another that now historically we're starting to balance the scales, right? I mean, if you look globally in the way Turkey has ostracized itself by not showing the humility of acknowledging a very shameful part of their history. Well, the same thing now with Canada. This is our reckoning because now this is our opportunity to not only look deeper into these atrocities and what took place and how we treated our own, but also in going on the world stage and being a leader in acknowledging the fact that this kind of cultural genocide has been taking place all over the world. And that if you're not part, you know, historically of the majority, if you're not part of that ultra-nationalist homogenous core that we're being seen all over the world, that's being replicated. I don't care if you live in Israel, Brazil, Russia, Turkey, it's everywhere. Um, this is a shameful legacy of racism and uh, prejudice that needs to be fully, fully uh, explored for all Canadians to learn about, not just in school, but for government to take the lead, to not just apologize for it, but keep pushing the Truth and Reconciliation Committee in the direction of making sure that every single Canadian understands why this is such a shameful moment and, and an important moment for us to look at ourselves and understand what could have driven us to, to, to discover these types of, of evils. Our shift heads will know I don't often give out uh, karma points to the federal government too often, but I, I must say I did approve and I endorsed the fact that uh, Minister Mark Miller, uh, you know, following the, the discovery of what happened there in Kamloops with that uh, mass, mass burial, uh, did basically make this announcement saying that the Pope should apologize for the role that the Catholic Church had played. And I think, um, you know, that that's the kind of response that I want elected leaders to be having right now is to, to find accountability and to, yes, even hold someone as, as, you know, prestigious, if that's your background or esteemed, whatever you consider the Pope to be, but to hold them accountable for, for these things, because that's the position. That's your job. The Pope isn't just about glamour and glitz. It's about dealing with, of course, uh, the hard truths and sometimes difficult conversations like this. 
Well said. I mean, you hit it on the nail. Uh, and I think for most of your, especially Catholic listeners, I should say that uh, you've got the right Pope to do what you described, which is show not only show humility, but spearhead this um, this further understanding of of the role that they played in all of this, because Pope Francis has been a reformer from day one. If it were the previous dude, that'd be a different ballgame, honestly. If you had the previous pope, he wouldn't even mention it in any of their communique and, and, and public relations efforts all over the world. But Francis is, has enough humil- humility in his body to, to be able to confront this. I just think they're completely stunned by it and overwhelmed because we know it's not just going to be one unmarked grave. It's going to be many mass burial sites with so many different lives affected. I mean... What a raw deal, you know, for for those of our indigenous members of Canada who not only have to deal with the second class, second rate reality that they struggle with, but now they have to learn that so many of their um, descendants turned into their ancestors, so to speak, uh, far too soon. And the best way to honor them now is to make sure that the truth comes out and to make sure that there are no uh, typical bureaucratic political chicanery taking place in slowing that down. It's why South Africa was able to make, by the way, the transition from apartheid to their new reality, because Nelson Mandela came out and said, we are not going to avenge our frustration and grief. We are going to find reconciliation through mutual respect with those who may not have directly perpetrated it, but their ancestors were involved. And that's why I'm not going to start a whole new narrative on who's to blame. In the final analysis, we're all to blame. Mm. And now we all have to come together and understand how do we address this properly so that Indigenous Canadians moving forward feel like they are really part of Canada, not just a chapter in which we discovered all these sad things. When I was younger, you know, my family immigrated here from South Korea, and I I moved over um, with my family, of course, when I was young, like three or four, young to the point where I obviously wasn't fluent in the language that uh, I grew up in, uh, in, in Korea. And by the time I started taking school here in Canada, and I went in ESL, uh, English essentially became my first language. uh, And it's obviously been huge for me in my career. But as I was maybe going through elementary school, uh, some of the first friends that I had made in a small area of Port Moody, uh, among them was uh, someone named Will. And Will was my age. We had the same teacher. We had the same class and all these things. Will uh, is indigenous. And when I got to know Will a little bit growing up, one of the things that we had in common was that um, neither of us could speak our mother tongue. But when I was younger, I didn't understand. And so to now look back and know that for indigenous peoples, entire languages have vanished and the elders don't even know how they can teach this language to the next generation because the alphabet might be gone or, or that, that method just isn't there anymore. These are indigenous peoples and yet to feel like immigrants in this country, that has got to be so heartbreaking. It really is. I mean, Nunavut is not Quebec. Right. If it were, it would be a different story altogether, because when we look at the relationship between Francophones and Anglophones and and what it means to to be from the original home country of France and find yourself kind of in a colonial reality, the way that we've coexisted with them, as rocky as it's been, and I say with them as an English speaking Ontarian, the way that I see who I am coexisting with in Canada is that I've never looked at them as being French. I've never looked at Quebecers as being from Quebec. I've always looked at them as being Canadian. And that's an aspiration that I think every person who has an indigenous background, who comes from a Native American legacy, that once upon a time, they had the most extraordinarily soulful societies of settlers that traversed the plains and terraform their way to adapt to every kind of outdoor reality while maintaining a sense of family and spirituality that rivals anything monotheism could ever possibly offer in terms of inspiration? Hard to believe that was the case. But we know historically that they were horribly robbed of that, that they not only were forcibly removed from the places that they came from, that the way that we integrated them into our society clearly was lacking. And shame on us that we have ancestors and those 
if we're not immigrants who may have been sixth generation Canadians, because it's not looking well. It's not a good look when Egerton Ryerson is revealed to be someone who was an architect or a pioneer behind that system. He's lucky he's just getting, you know, paint on his face as a statue. He's not, he's like, he's not alive today. You know, if he could somehow be here for us to address it. And so we have to, we have to understand how we deal with our history now, because it, this, this notion of Canada, the wonderful, the great, the peacekeeping, multicultural, uh, bipartisan centrist country that it is, is a complete and utter fallacy. Except for the centrist part. I think if you really take the cauldron that is Canada, we are not radical. We're, we're like mm. the best of English sensibilities and American culture in some respects. We love consumerism, but we love, we love history. Well, guess what? Now we're getting a slice of history that requires us to really dig deep down inside and to start making sure that the men and women who lead us at every level, municipal, provincial, and federal, understand that this should be an absolute priority and to make sure that we do everything in our power to stop the second class reality that many indigenous people have or feel in this country. He is Ari Shapiro, our friend, our contributor for our Eastern Connection. Find his work online, arishapiro.ca. My pleasure as always, sir, and we look forward to having you back here on the show. It was a pleasure. Look forward to speaking to you again. Take care, my friend. This is The Shift Podcast. All right, we've been talking about this and teasing it all night long. A beloved member of the Shift family is leaving us. So without further ado, Matt, let's introduce who this is. Andrew Ferreira is weird. So weird, he loves science more than sleep and other people. It's time for Andrew Ferreira's Weird Science. Well, that can only mean one thing. Our Weird Science host... A resident a Taco Bell lover and delivery person sometimes. Andrew Ferreira will be leaving the shift. We'll be leaving the network in just a few more days and weeks. Andrew, welcome back to the show. We love you. We are sad to see and hear this announcement, but it's for good reasons and good intentions. So please explain what is happening on your side. I am being um, sent back to the universe. Oh, wow. You mean the UFOs? No. No. Okay, fair enough. No, 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 no. The government's just going to jettison me into deep space. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know what? If you get to meet Elon Musk on your way to do so, maybe it'll be worth it. I wouldn't give myself about 12 seconds of consciousness before death. But that's just about how long you can expect to live if you get jettisoned into the vacuum of space. Anyway, uh, no, I'm actually, uh, I've decided to do the the silly thing uh, and go back and finish some edumacation. Um, ah. So that's what I'll be doing. Um, I All right, so. Be plunged <laughs> back into the, the sea of student debt. <laughs> I know that feeling. Trust me, I do. Um, it's never fun when you have to pay that off, but it does feel very satisfying once you finally finish paying that off and fingers crossed that it's going to be sooner rather than later. But, you know, Andrew, like it, it did make me a little sad, of course, to, to see that you would be leaving. I think you've been a great teammate. Um, when I first joined 980 CKNW and the announcement was made to staff members that I'd be a part of the, uh, you know, the new guy on the block, so to speak. Andrew was among the first to like directly send out an email um, sharing his excitement with the announcement, which made me feel pretty great. Not going to lie. Andrew also kind of pumped my tires a little bit saying like, you know, I used to check you out on sports radio. We can talk hockey. We can talk Canucks. Very exciting. And so like that, that's always stuck with me, Andrew. And I wanted to just, you know, give you a chance to just let you know that, you know, I really did appreciate you reaching out like that. And, um, it, it, it's it's too bad that this pandemic has prevented us from going and grabbing the Taco Bell uh, ever since you sent that email. But eventually, you you and I we're gonna have to do this. Like we'll bring Matt along, we'll bring Leo. We're gonna have a whole shift partay with Taco Bell and Crunchwrap Supremes. Oh, absolutely! I know a, I know a really good park by the uh, the only park near the uh, the Taco Bell in Surrey, British Columbia that I frequent. Um, <laughs> if you know it, you know it. Um, be fun, just to relax. Fair but enough. But alas, All right. there is still a pandemic happening. Yeah, yeah. Fingers crossed that it's uh, over sooner rather than later. But 
hey, safety first. That's a good policy to follow. Andrew, uh, we, we're happy for you. We're excited for you that uh, it's self-investment of your time as a student. You want to continue experiencing life and growing up and learning things. So I, I think it's a it's a bold move. It's a it's a great move. And so I wish you all the best. I'm sure all our shift heads listening wish you all the best. But weird science is what we got you on here for. You're still technically on the clock, good sir. So what That's is right. happening? in the world of weird. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and commandeer for a second here, because way back in the yesteryear, weird science came about because of an on-air meeting. And I'd like to call an on-air meeting right now. Okay. Ooh. Ooh. Show meeting. Um, <laughs> show meeting. Um, so here's the shtick. Tonight, I'll put the weird in weird science. And then next week, I'll put the science in Weird Science. Oh. How does that sound? I'm going to keep it I'll vague. I'll to that. Yeah. All right. Oh. All right, good. Book it. Let's do that. Uh, it'll be fun. Anyway, I'm glad that the meeting has adjourned. I didn't record minutes. <laughs> um, so if we're looking for a record of that, uh, I guess we have recordings of this, and that'll have yeah. to do. Yeah. Um, so to get things started here with the, you know, I, I've I've tended to skew a little bit to the sciencey part of, of weird science over time. That's because I I'm a nerd and I like that. Um, but I want to talk about buried curse chickens. Oh, okay. I know. I I saw that too, and I was I didn't know how to react to it at first. Uh, and then I read 36 pages of a journal about this. Okay. Um, with such delightful subheadings as. Uh, page 107, The Dismembered Chicken. Uh, page 102, Ritual Interpretations. Oh, my. Uh, and page 94, Names. <laughs> so what this is, is this is, uh, this is a journal article out of uh, Hesperia, which is the Journal of the American School of Classical Studies in Athens. So if you're a Greek history buff, you probably know what this is. Um, the journal article is called The Curious Case of the Cursed Chicken, a new binding ritual from the Athenian Agora. Um, now, I'm no uh, ancient Greek history uh, smart man. I'm, in fact, an ancient Greek history stupid man. Um, but that's okay. <laughs> I was able to read these pages, and the entire time I was like, what am I doing here? Um, so let's start at the beginning. So excavators... Greek, Athens, the entire Mediterranean is, is, is a historical hotbed. Is, it's generally seen as the cradle of Western civilization. Um, right. And so it's it's subject to all sorts of excavations, uh, all sorts of uh, historical finds, all sorts of landmarks from at least 20 minutes ago. Um, so on August 3rd, 2006, which is at least 20 minutes ago, um, excavators <laughs> were, uh, were doing their excavating thing. Um, and this is what it's called the, the classical commercial building, which I suppose is some kind of central marketplace or something like that um, on the northern edge of the Athenian Agora, whatever that is. I just assume it's, a, it's, it's an archaeological site. Um, <laughs> archaeologists found a, an earthenware vessel that was underneath the floorboards, or not floorboards, but underneath the floor itself of this Athenian Agora. Uh, of the central commercial marketplace. And inside uh, of this uh, mysterious bowl, uh, this earthenware bowl, it kind of looks like a, like if you took the, the, if you took the Kool-Aid guy and shrunk him down a lot, kind of looks like that. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. Except, except made of clay and not clear oh, yeah. and not, and not screaming. Thank God. Um, but this clay mini Kool-Aid man was inscribed with, 55 names, of which about 30 are more or less legible in, in, in today's Greek, and uh, the other proportion of the names have kind of faded or cracked away with time, which is a shame. Um, but this is a completely new, um, and this I'm going to use the exact wording from the conclusion of this article here, uh, an unparalleled example of a private curse ritual of a previously undocumented type. So what archaeologists have figured over the last number of years here, and don't forget, this was just published uh, in the January, the first uh, quarter of the year edition of this year's uh, journal. So this has been years in the making. Um, 
this vessel, they believe, served as a medium for a binding curse. Um, wow. And in case you didn't know, uh, curses have been around since at least uh, at least uh, classical Grecian and Roman times. They've been around, I would argue, probably about as long as humans have had imaginations. Um, and so what this specific curse that uh, archaeologists believe this is meant to do, uh, a binding curse is meant to um, mentally and or physically incapacitate uh, those who are inscribed on you know, whatever surface you may have. Whoa. So pretty hardcore stuff. I don't want to be on the receiving end of this. I'm already pretty close to being mentally and physically incapacitated just from the, the stress of living. Um, I don't need to take <laughs> it any further. But this is the interesting part. So they've looked at all the names here, and there's a, a motley assortment uh, of all this stuff. And the interesting part isn't so much in the names. Of course, I do want to know who the heck was getting cursed. Like, yeah, what seriously. did you do? Uh, but more importantly, what I found interesting was what they found inside. Uh, and inside the uh, the mini Kool-Aid man was a dismembered chicken. Uh, this dismembered chicken was pierced with a large iron nail. And this was buried underground with a bronze coin. Um, mm. And now scientists believe that this is, archaeologists believe rather, this is a uh, a bricolage, of you, if you will, of, of, uh, of practices that kind of took pieces of different curse elements of the time. Um, and so they've wondered, um, you know, there's elements of cursed tablets with the names being inscribed on the, on the actual surface of the, and uh, the actual vessel itself is, is, is called uh, a chytra. Um, so there are actually names engraved on, on the chytra itself. Uh, not only that, but the, um, the, in, the insides, the subsumed uh, contents of it uh, resembled stuff like what you would find um, at with effigies, like a curse effigy. Uh, you wanted to burn an effigy? I don't know. Maybe I don't, It's not what I do in my spare time, but if you do, hey, go for it. Um, what I do on also, a Sunday is none of your business, Andrew. But yes, continue. Uh, you know, you know, you know, you know. Um, and it bore the hallmarks of, of several different things all combined into one. So this, they theorize that this curse may have been brought about by some kind of legal dispute. Um, the the building in which it was found is was I believe is some kind something of a marketplace or a place where trades uh, where trades folks would come in and out and you know sell you know I'm you know I'm a carpenter I carpent things I'm an iron worker I iron work things etc 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 so the leading hypothesis for this is that there was some kind of legal conflict between these craftspersons. Um, and as some kind of um, illegal and occult kind of uh, recompense, they tried to curse um, the offending party, if you will. Um, archaeologists have dated uh, the Kytra to around 300 BC. So this is a, you know, uh, close to a 2300 year old or 2400 year old, sorry, um, curse vessel <laughs> that they have unearthed. Uh, it's a good thing they didn't unearth this in 2020 because who knows what would have happened. Um, <laughs> but it's interesting to note that during this time, and this is verging into history, which I'm also a big fan of, uh, the 4th century BC in ancient Greece was a period of bad. Uh, bad includes war, includes uh, political upheaval, includes famine, includes all sorts of stuff that um, are at least slightly inconvenient. And this is something of what archaeologists believe is proof of people trying to uh, come to terms with uh, the era of upheaval uh, and trying to right wrongs that they feel have been levied against them. Um, to get into the specifics here, because, you know, there is an entire subsection called the dismembered chicken, um, page 107, for those of you following <laughs> along at home. Um, it contained the head, the lower legs, and the feet of a young chicken, uh, unbutchered, so just kind of there. Um, and it's incredible because remains like this don't really survive. They are usually turned to dust. Uh, they are usually composted away by, or by you know, scavenging organisms. Uh, so I just think it's amazing that this was sealed so well. 
um, that it survived, you know, literally thousands of years being buried under an ancient, you know, essentially floorboard, uh, with the hope that it may curse some 55 allegedly people, whether, it, you know, it was a, we want them to die, we want them to simply just be not good. Um, Athenian binding curses, which I didn't know were a thing until today, um, aimed to kind of, in a way, level the playing field by clubbing your opponent in the head several times, is, I, I assume, the outcome here. So this, and I imagine that there might be one or two uh, writers out there listening to me. Uh, and I'm going to take, this is from the abstract of the paper here. Um, this unique discovery offers new evidence for the practice of, quote, magic in the heart of ancient Athens. And if that doesn't speak, uh, I could turn that into a, into a book series. I don't know what does. Um, <laughs> so it, sometimes you, you spend your time looking through dusty science journals um, and it's all stuff like, you know, low levels of omega-3 associated with high risk of psychosis or Arctic sea ice thinning twice as fast as thought. It's really, be careful, global warming, don't screw around with that. But sometimes you see really wild stuff like the curious case of the cursed chicken. Um, and it's stuff like that that makes me appreciate uh, and value what I've been able to do with weird science. Because while I enjoy the science, it's not as fun if it's not weird. <laughs> oh, I love the weird. I love the weird. And uh, I love the fact that you brought this to us. I had no idea that Athenian curses like this, a binding curse, was actually a thing either. So I thank you for enlightening us here today. Uh, maybe we'll just hold off on the Taco Bell, you know, until the chickens are all good with this particular recent discovery. Uh, Andrew, before we of... let you go. Just a couple of texts here from some listeners. Uh, London saying, Andrew leaving sucks. I always enjoy his segments and humor. Maybe just reduce his schedule. Please keep him on. Uh, Catherine and Surrey saying, um, it really does suck. I love Andrew for your wit. The strongest quality you hold is being unique. And after school, will you come out to play? So uh, I already got some lovely messages here. Oh, and another person saying, uh, another one of my favorite segments gone. Sad face emoji. First Ryan Wrecker, now Weird Science. Good luck, Andrew. Hope they find a way to bring you back home from time to time. So you've clearly made connections here, Andrew. We're going to miss you for sure. But you will be back on the show next week to bring in the science of Weird Science. Yes. It'll be, uh, it'll be grand and somewhat tangentially related to what I just talked about, and I'll leave it at that. <laughs> oh, okay. Final question, if you feel comfortable sharing. London asks, what is Andrew learning in school? Yeah, that's a good question. Communications, ironically enough. All right. There you go. Going to uh, learn how to speak up. gooder to people. Yeah. Oh, you'd speak gooder already. I'm going to do the education to do the good speaking. Love it. That is Andrew Ferreira, host of Weird Science. Uh, we will get it back on the show at least one more time before we say sayonara. But thank you so much, Andrew. We'll uh, speak with you soon. Always. It's the Shift Podcast. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me. No more. Okay, it's another edition of uh, Let's Talk Love with our relationship expert. That is, of course, Nicole Haley. Nicole, welcome back. And how, are, how have you been? It's been a couple Thank of weeks. Yeah. yeah, so good. Yeah, it's been fun. Good all times. right. All right. Uh, glad to hear it. Uh, here we are. It's another weekend. And that means another round of questions for you from our listeners. Mm -hmm. And you can always uh, submit uh, whatever you've got to ask to Nicole at uh, 877-399-9898. You can also email me at john at cknw.com. John spelt J-A-W-N. And uh, this has been a fun segment because it continues to grow. And like people, uh, they they when they're listening to your answers, I see the reactions coming in. But I'm also getting emails from people that have never emailed me before. So I think that's a sign that people are getting into it. So let's start with this one. This is a message that I received from Kristen. And Kristen says, we have tried everything. My boyfriend is an absolutely nightmare because he is a snorer and it's become a big deal for us. I'm literally getting him to sleep on the couch. Sometimes I sleep on the couch. Otherwise, I actually can't get a good night's sleep. Mm -hmm. Everything else is so great, but earplugs, no strips, none of it seems to help. What are we supposed to do? That's a big one. 
And uh, the reason I say it's big is because sleep is so key. There's so many studies on sleep and women need a lot of sleep in particular. And so when we don't get our sleep. There's a whole other side that could show up <laughs> in our relationship that does not sound good. Yeah. So I think it's a having a conversation of really being able to be clear with each other and saying, this is what I need. Um, in order to function and operate. So maybe you both go to bed together, you're intimate, and then maybe you create another room, another space where you can separate. And then maybe you have an alarm where you slide back into bed in the morning and you cuddle or you have that morning talk. I think the key in a relationship is pillow talk. And what I mean by that is being able to go to bed, have a little bit of a conversation, a cuddle, and then most people, whatever ends up happening, kind of separates anyways to fall asleep. It's that intimate pillow talk that you don't want to lose because of the snoring or maybe someone's a restless sleeper. So you want to establish that and then maybe create a new space after you've had the pillow talk. I think that's a really good point. And like, I'll just say, uh, I do snore sometimes. <laughs> I've been told as such anyway, um, mm -hmm. that like, I always feel bad. Like, and so the chances mm -hmm. are whoever the person snoring is, like, they probably already have like some self-consciousness that they're worrying about, right? They don't feel great about, no one is like, I'm a proud snorer. Like, that's just <laughs> weird. So like having these conversations, it can be difficult because you don't want them to yeah. feel bad and you don't want them to be ashamed. Totally. But yeah. I get it. Like sleep is so important. I love sleeping too. So mm -hmm. if my partner can't get sleep, that makes, you know, that, that doesn't make sense yeah. for anybody. We need to find a solution. Uh, yeah. And I it can be totally honest. I actually love sleeping on the couch. I will be the one that will sneak <laughs> off to sleep on my couch because I love my space and I love sprawling. And I don't always feel like I'm like waking somebody up or I can't move too much because they're going to be bothered by it. So, yeah, you may find me on the couch quite often. <laughs> this is an unusual practice, but I, I saw it on the Internet happening uh, a couple of years mm -hmm. ago because, again, I was like, OK, if I'm a snower, maybe I should try and find some <laughs> solutions. Somebody right. suggested, why don't you sleep so that um somebody is sleeping straight in bed like just normally yeah and then the other person has their pillow where the partner's feet are and like ah. again i don't know if i recommend it because like right. if your partner is like a, a kicker. kicker yeah <laughs> then, like, you don't want to get a concussion in bed of all things totally. but I maybe know that's going to make a difference because it's the sound it's the vibrational sound i don't i don't know if that's going to be enough sometimes you need to be in a different room yeah you know, like far enough away <laughs> <laughs> yeah, fair enough yeah just you know Get creative, but honestly, yeah. and have that conversation. I think that's the key here. Uh, we got this email from Jesse saying, uh, really enjoying hearing Nicole on the show, which we thank you for that. Uh, got a question. My partner is my best friend. We really get along. We do pretty much everything together. Uh, recently had a conversation with a friend, though, who told me that they and others in our circle are kind of annoyed. They don't really see me or they, um, they, don't, they don't get to hang out with me anymore. I probably reacted harshly and we kind of got into this fight so who's in the wrong i don't really think about this uh, until it came up last week i didn't really think about this until mm -hmm. it came up last week so mm -hmm. that's that's a that's a big one because like growing up even i've had issues where friends have just fallen off the face of the earth sure. because they just get into a relationship yeah Totally. And I think it depends on when that new relationship starts, right? If this is a new relationship, we tend to get so excited in that new stage that we want to see that person all the time. They're filling up this love tank of ours that we didn't know was so empty. And our friends are kind of like, well, what happened to us? And then, you know, the typical of the relationship ends or it breaks down, you're back to your friends. So what you want to look at is how to have that balance. Because over a long term, if you're looking at a long term relationship that's healthy, you need separate space. You need to have some individualism. You need to have some of that own interests and hobbies and passions and so that may be your circle of friends but I can appreciate when you get so much from your your partner and he is your best friend or they're your best friend you don't feel the need mm -hmm. <laughs> to have this other social circle but if you're looking long-term healthy it can create resentment over time because you need newness and the only way to get newness in a relationship is to try different things without each other to then share that experience. Yeah. And look, I'll just add that without knowing the full situation, of course, mm -hmm. the pandemic doesn't help, right? Because right. you have to stay home as much as you can. You have to keep mm -hmm. your social interactions with sure. people very, very limited or in like outside outdoors. Uh, yeah. The one advantage I would also say for Jesse here is that like the weather's improving and the one yeah. of the safest, th safest things you can do is get outside. If you're going to have some friends, yeah. you know, uh, get a barbecue going mm -hmm. outside or something like yeah. that. That. that way everyone feels invited and, and it's safe True. to do so. But sometimes what happens in those conversations is that that person may be so involved with their partner that they, they even in a social circle, can ignore their friends because mm. they, they've got these inside jokes now and they've got this camaraderie and their friends can still feel a bit isolated. So you may need to separate and actually have some girl nights out or guy nights out because that actually is really healthy because then when you come back to your partner, you have something to share, a new story, a new experience. So it's something to think about. 
I want to branch off that then because that brings us into maybe the topic of like PDA and like um, now I, I think most of us have a pretty good understanding like what's uh, appropriate like in terms of PDA but maybe like it, it is worth having a discussion with your friends like if somebody mm -hmm. is in a new relationship like you say yeah. and when you do hang out they're just kind of like all over each other right. you know at some point you're just like get a room, get a room. but like <laughs> honestly like that that's a that's a conversation you should have totally yeah and to know what each person's level of comfort or comfort is and then it's also curious the other person can be like why am I so triggered by seeing this mm. and like curiosity is am I bothered because I wish I had that kind of relationship with my person Am I bothered because I'm single and it's annoying because I want that and I haven't found someone like that? The curiosity can be on both sides. Why am I so triggered by seeing it? <laughs> Look, I'm uh, turning 31 in a couple of months. Mm -hmm. uh, at this point in my life, I'm seeing personally, like a lot of my friends are not just in long-term relationships, but now they've gotten married. Mm. Now they're starting to have kids. And for me, I'll also single myself out. Like I, I, I'm worried that like once they start having kids that are getting older, that they're only going to want to hang out with other parents. And I'm like mm. that, that, that weird friend of theirs that hasn't had a kid yet. I'm like, yeah. I'm still cool guys. You can still <laughs> hang out with me. So like, it, maybe it goes both ways in that sense. Like, um, mm -hmm. you know, you want to feel inclusive to everyone in your social circle, even though it can be tough to maybe divvy up the time sometimes. Yeah, absolutely. And I think we all we lean into or bond over familiarity or similarness or lifestyle, right? So if all of a sudden you have kids, you're going to be connecting with parents that are got similar stories. Or if you're really an avid hiker, you're going to connect with people that are really avid. So we mm. kind of naturally do that. We tribe, it's called tribal. But the key is, is being conscious of it, like not to be so exclusive that you miss out on other great opportunities. Yeah, yeah. I, I thought I left the clicks back in high school, but it's <laughs> continues They're to follow natural. me to the, yeah follows me to this day uh thank you for that one jesse uh another email this one um they just wanted to be known as rj so i'll i'll just leave it at that rj says a friend of mine is dating a really great guy everything about them as a pair just seems to work but his parents really do not approve i know mm -hmm. this stresses both of them out and as a friend i can only do so much to be supportive because i know it's a big deal do they just grit their teeth and deal with this? Or is this something to walk away from as a friend? I don't really know what's the best piece of advice. Yeah, that's a tricky one because there can be so many variables to why the parents aren't in alignment with it. It could be cultural. It could be religion beliefs. It could be the timing. They might have different expectations. I think when you're looking at this, there's a few parts is a you want to have some conversations as a couple like how do we navigate this what do we both need in order to fulfill fulfill but also then having some individual conversation with these parents mm -hmm. uh, of that person be like what is the expectations what's the resistance what did you want for me where are we misaligned and why and how do we overcome it i think those are some healthy conversations to have uncomfortable yes but important because we can assume reasons that might not actually be accurate and once you get clear then maybe you can move through those challenges or you may have to reevaluate that relationship and say this relationship is going to cost the dynamic of my family is it worth it and you might be yeah this is amazing i don't want to lose this or you might be like you know what the connection with my family is so strong and this relationship isn't that strong mm. i don't know if i want to sacrifice that but you won't yeah. know yeah and, and you know for for the person that maybe doesn't have the the green light from those parents uh, it also maybe from my personal point of view it's like you want to be entering a long-term relationship where you know you have the full support and love from not just your partner but from like everyone in their mm -hmm. family too because if you're making like if they are getting married um mm -hmm. I, i'm assuming nobody wants to get married and knowing that like my partner's parents hate me but like we're gonna yeah. get married anyway like that's probably such a bad feeling it is. And it, 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 we can be like, oh, it's not a big deal. It's not a big deal. But it is over time when you want to do family events or if you have kids and you're having different celebrations or family traditions, it will show up. So it's really getting clear on like, what is the actual obstacle here? Mm. And what's it going to cost me to be in this? Area? It costs both par partners, right? The parent, the kid or the person whose parents don't agree. And then the person who's agreeing to be in this that aren't like, it cost all of you something. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you know, what is it? And is it worth it? And uh, again, uh, it's, I, I keep mentioning the pandemic, and I'm so sorry to keep bringing it up, but it's become such a focal point that I certainly over the past 15 months, maybe most of us have realized how important family connections are. Because yeah. uh, now that maybe we don't get to see extended family as much, you're like, you know, I used to hate Uncle Todd's stories right. at dinner, mm -hmm. but like now I actually kind of miss that dude. Right. And, like miss those stories. <laughs> and so it's important to want to have positive relationships there uh, when possible. Um, mm -hmm. Not that I, like, my, all of my extended family are all in, like, different countries, so I, I don't actually get to see them a lot. But I digress. Uh, got this text uh, last week, this, uh, I guess, two weeks ago, pardon me. Uh, this one from Ali saying, 
my girlfriend's best friend is involved with uh, an MLM, which is a multi-level marketing mm-hmm. program. Mm-hmm. I told her time and time again that I don't want her to support it. I don't want her to buy it. But she went behind my back and actually spent money, bought into this. I'm angry. I feel betrayed. I also feel angry at her friend. How do you tell somebody to stop being friends with somebody else without coming across as literally the worst kind of person? That is, that's a, yeah, that's a big, big one. Yeah. I'll speak on a very general yeah. because there are so many layers to this and I and could be totally off the mark. I think the question you both get to ask is what's that other person needing? So for example, the friend that feels or the partner that feels betrayed because she went behind your back, ask yourself, why did that bother you? Why do you not want her to be in this MLM? What is it about this product, this line? And then getting really curious with the person that bought it. Why did you want to buy it? Was it more out of peer pressure? Was it because you want to support your friend more than the actual product? Mm. Like there's so many questions you want to ask because sometimes we assume it's for one thing and it's another reason altogether. Um, and then when you look at trying to dissolve a friendship, that's going to be tricky because you, you're no matter how you approach it, that person's going to be like, you're just saying that because you don't like X, Y, Z. And it may come across as being jealous or possessive or controlling. And so it may not land well. So the curiosity is, is why does this bother each of you? And where do we find some agreement in this? Yeah. And uh, I, I, I'm sorry that um, I only got to this question a couple of weeks later. But I I wonder, like, because Ali has already f- you know, told that partner to like, don't do it. And then they did it anyway. Mm-hmm. What do you think? Like, is that a, a sign from then that partner saying like, I, I acknowledge that you didn't want me to do it, but I'm going mm-hmm. to ignore it. Or I'm just going to go the other way because maybe like I prioritize my friendship with this person. Yeah. That'd be higher. the curiosity. Yeah. yeah is yeah. like, why is it so important to do it? Is it a sense of, I can do what I want that rebellious energy. I'm going to prove to you that I don't need control. Or is that pull with that friendship so strong that there's that pressure or obligation there. And then the curiosity is Ali, how do you feel? Like, why didn't you want her to do it or him? Why is that such an, an issue for you? Mm. And is it now break of trust? And is it, what did you want them? What from them? Was it that they told you? And then if they, did tell you would you still been upset because sometimes the truth people don't want to hear either right yeah yeah I, I, so I, there's that layer I, I don't have a ton of experience with mlms but having friends that uh have, have been in some of these programs before like it is really enthralling in the sense that you you ask people in your family you ask people yeah. in your close friends network your mm-hmm. colleagues like you're supposed to branch out and so like mm-hmm. Is this a conversation about whether MLMs are good or bad? I don't think it necessarily has to go that way. But mm-hmm. I think if you have somebody in your life that's in a situation like that, you have to be very clear about the boundaries. Be like, hey, yeah. like we're friends because we're friends. Like I don't want to be your business partner. I think yeah. people need to know that there's a there's totally. a line there. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I'll support you, but my support looks like this. Mm. Or my loyalty goes to my partner first. And if they're not okay with that, then I can't support you. Like, I think that person in the middle gets really trapped between honoring their partner and honoring their friend. <laughs> yeah. And they might not really know who they should be following the right thing to do. Yeah. Yeah. Again, like this one is, is a pretty complex problem. So <laughs> I, I hope, I, you know, I, I hope that Ali, when you listen, you get to give us an update on maybe how things yes. have gone or how you handled that situation. But, uh, you know, that's, that's, that's a big one. And I know that's, <laughs> asking questions I think is maybe the best thing you could do so I'm glad that you at least uh, wanted to reach out like that uh, 877-399-9898 you can always submit your questions for Nicole you can always email me john at cknw.com that's john spelled j-a-w-n Nicole that's it for this week we okay. have uh, more questions I'm sure when we get you back here on the okay. show but until then how can our listeners find you in case uh, in the meantime they just got to get in touch with you yeah reach out you can find me at uh, Nicole Talks Love and if you're curious if there's a question you didn't get answered drop in you can do a discovery call with me it's called Let's Talk Love if you're curious and I can go a little bit deeper in some of that sometimes you're just like yeah but what about this <laughs> or you didn't answer that so feel free to reach out love to help you and support you more that's my fault because one of the things I, I, I need to do a better job on this show is getting through all the texts and all the emails <laughs> and all the questions. And I just feel like there's never enough time. But that's a great thing. It means that you people are listening and I love you so much for that. Uh, Nicole, thank you so much. And we'll talk again very soon. Sounds great. Thanks. This is The Shift Podcast.
right, uh, the weekend is uh, obviously upon us now, which means it's time we connect with the resident cocktail expert of this show. He is Colin McDougal. We're going to call him C-Mac with our friends at Corby Spirit and Wine. C-Mac, how are you doing tonight? I'm doing great. All right. Doing great. So, how are you doing? Oh, yeah, I can't complain. You know, it's been a beautiful uh, past uh, number of days here on the West Coast. Sun is shining. It feels like summer. And, you know... I guess a lot of Canadians across the country are also dealing a bit of a, a bit of a heat wave, depending on where they might be living. So we wanted to connect with you to see what's the best cocktail that you've got in mind on a warm day that you just want to relax and just kind of have a relaxing drink and just sort of ease into the weekend with. Yeah, yeah, no, that's that's awesome. I mean, the weather here has been—I mean, that's an understatement, eh? It felt like. Mexico or something. Yeah. It was 28 degrees here, um, crazy hot. So uh, sipping, you know, neat scotch on the patio is probably not going to be the most um, hydrating. <laughs> <laughs> so, like for me, I, I like to uh, go to those like mixed, like shaken and stirred drinks. And and you know, when I thought about like what would I want to drink like this weekend, um, I'm looking around the garden. I don't know if you do any gardening, but even if you live downtown in a 500 square foot apartment. Um, if you have a little balcony, you can grow rosemary. Like I, I used to have it in my, my little oh, shoebox apartment. Okay. And so rosemary, the cool thing about rosemary is that like, it's unkillable <laughs> virtually, right? <laughs> if you, if you never, if you never, if you're going to grow anything like in your garden, like rosemary is the first one you plant it. And it's almost like, yeah, if you're, if you're like <laughs> starting off, um, it's almost impossible. And the reason I bring up the rosemary is because one of my favorite summer drinks is a gimlet. Oh, so, okay. Gimlet is like kind of like the answer to like gin's daiquiri if you really want to try to simplify it. It's it's gin, lime juice, simple syrup, um, shaken, served over ice. So it's super refreshing. And then uh, you get all those like herbal notes, right, from gin, which is mm-hmm. based on like juniper and, and coriander, but piney kind of flavors, right? So um, this isn't my idea, though. Like what I, what I would do is... Uh, I'd go down to like Kiefer Bar. They actually even have kits that you can just pick up. It's all made for you. You can bring it home. You even get a pack of Itchy Band noodles with it. Oh, right on. So, <laughs> yeah. So I'm looking at the kits right now. It's like fifty fifty dollars for the half, or or like ninety dollars for the full bottle. But for making this one at home, like I mean, all it is is you know you have fresh lime juice, um, a couple ounces of gin, and then that rosemary that's that's that evergreen that's sitting on your patio that you haven't used for anything that maybe you planted or or maybe you're gonna go and plant it now hopefully. Um, you snip a couple of the little uh, the stems off. You put it put a cup of water um, on uh, on the stovetop in a pot. Add those stems in. Uh, bring it up to a boil. Add a cup of sugar, and then just let it. Basically, you're just dissolving it. Wow. Um, bring it down and you and bring it down to a simmer. Like you want to try to get as much of that flavor out because this drink, for the record, if you're just using like gin, simple syrup. Uh, and fresh lime juice tastes great. This is just taken in another step further, and and the Kiefer Bar are the ones who really, um, who really made this like famous, I would say. Yeah. Uh, but once once you've got that syrup, I always put in. So if I've got that cup, you know, those two cups together now, I put in two ounces of my gin into that syrup when it's at room temperature, and that helps it stay longer in the fridge. And then that that's it. Boom, boom. You've got instead of just simple syrup, you've got rosemary simple syrup. Um, so it's just two ounces of gin, one ounce of lime juice, one ounce of this this stuff. Shake it up, pour it over ice, and enjoy. It's it's delicious. It, it's a small bit of a process, but it feels like this is a drink that you start the weekend with, and uh, it, it's something that you can prepare for. Like if you have friends, uh, eventually if you're going to have like little patio barbecues or something like that, it's a really neat way to sort of impress some of the people in your circle to be like, hey. I'm going to mix you guys up something real nice. And I bet most people haven't had a drink that involves having to boil and then simmer certain ingredients. Yeah, I mean, it's really, and that might sound intimidating, but just imagine you're just putting on, on, like on the stovetop a small pot, put one cup of water, just equal parts, one cup of water, one cup of sugar. I just use white sugar. You can use brown sugar, whatever you've got. Um, and then and then just putting in there and simmering it. Like if you can make craft dinner, you can make this syrup. Like it's, <laughs> it's literally that easy, right? And then and then you look like you know the hero of cocktails at your house. You've got this syrup, which is amazing. Um, and 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 keep in mind too, if you screw it up, you can always just call Kiefer, uh, pick up one of these kits, and then pass it off as your own until love you get it, it right. <laughs> yeah, love it. And you know what? Practice makes perfect. And I, I love when yeah. we're, we're thinking of cocktails, like the drink in itself is obviously uh, what you're going for, but how you garnish cocktails 
is really a chance to put in your own personality or put in a little bit of a twist. And I think that's where a lot of people usually have fun with that is that, hey, anyone can mix drinks together, but it's how you add that little extra something that's going to make it really stand out. Yeah, absolutely. For this one, like because you have all of those um, all of those ingredients going on, I mean, if you've got that rosemary plant, I always clip off a little piece of rosemary, and I got these little baby uh, clothes pins that I like clip on the side of the glass. I'm really fancy at my dinner parties <laughs> here. But uh, but another one that works really cool too is uh, because you get all these like herbal flavors, right? I just slice up some cucumber, so big long wedges of cucumber to yeah. chuck in there too, and then then that's like your that's your functional garnish, right? Like you're kind of like dipping your cucumber in your drink, having a bite. Um, and how summer is that, eh? Doesn't that sound refreshing and delicious? Oh, oh it sounds wonderful. <laughs> like that, that sounds like something I need to be preparing. But I still got a radio show to conduct, so I'll, uh, I'll try to be responsible. Yeah. But with that in mind, you know, like when, when Canadians are thinking about like summer heat and, and trying to cool down, this seems like a, a pretty neat way, a creative way of just kind of trying something new, trying something different. And I think most people will find that, oh, yeah, I've got like a bottle of gin laying around. Like we always have a liquor cabinet and and chances are you're going to have like maybe a bottle of, uh, who knows, Sapphire or maybe some Tanqueray, whatever it is. Everyone's got a bottle of gin. Yeah, yeah, totally. I mean, the the tried and true, like it's usually in every bar is Beefeater. Um, I love Beefeater because it's like a sipping gin. So you can make martinis with it. Mm-hmm. Um, but then when you put it into cocktails, it punches through. Some of some of the other gins out there, they the way that they make them, that just the botanicals that are in there, so the coriander, juniper, all these things, you know, we'll bore you the details on that. But what what's in there is really soft and subtle. So when you use something like Beef Eater, um, that's probably something that's kicking around. It's been around forever, right? Like it's a huge established brand. Um, and Beef Eater is the only uh, uh, gin that's being still dis- uh, distilled within the vicinity of London. So it's a London dry gin made within the vicinity of London last remaining. So to me, I just, I think it's a no brainer and that's what Kiefer Bar is chosen for as well. So, um, it's not just me saying it. There's definitely some people out there that love it too. Amazing. All right. Uh, that is our cocktail for the week. He is Colin McDougal. Call him C-Mac, our expert with uh, Corby spirit and wine. C-Mac, thank you so much, sir. And uh, bottoms up. Bottoms up. Have a great weekend. Thanks. Thanks for listening to The Shift Podcast. Make sure you subscribe, rate, and review the show and share with anyone you like. Get it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, and CuriousCast.ca.